Matthew 7. Let me try to get this right here. Matthew 7, continuing in verse 13 through 29. So we've got a long one to read today. So we'll go over it one time before we do the rest. So Matthew 7, 13 through 29. Familiar passage, chilling passage if we're honest. This is Jesus, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Or if you have Jerry's version, iniquity. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. We'll stop at 27. So if you're anything like me, at some time in your life when you read this text or hear those words of Jesus, it sends a chill up your spine, does it not? Because here we have Jesus telling those who claimed to do many mighty works in His name. Miracles, casting out demons, mighty works. Jesus looks at him and says, depart from me. People prophesying again, casting out demons, doing all these things. And I've always thought that Jesus' lack of response to these admissions is telling. He doesn't say to them, that didn't happen. Or the validity of your statements is suspect, does he? He doesn't object or contravene their pleas. But what he does say is, depart from me, because I, I don't know you. Or a more understandable translation 
Get out of my face. That's what he says. And this is the chilling part, is it not? From what these people are saying, making their appeal to Jesus, it sounds legitimate. Casting out demons? I mean, how many of us here have cast out demons? Probably not many of us. Or done what many would consider mighty works or miracles in Jesus' name. So, if these appealers are thrown out of the presence of the Lord, the chill becomes, well, what chance do I have? What chance do I have? And we've all probably thought about that if we're honest. Have we not? We see those in the scene that Jesus sets are claiming a connection to Jesus. A closeness to His name. A familiarity with Him. A familiarity with His authority. Even using His name authoritatively in ways that benefit themselves and benefit others. But again, He did not know them. He did not know them. Why? Why? And that's what we're going to figure out today. Well, because they did not do what He said. They did not do what He said. So Jesus' words here and our consideration is timely. Of course, God's Word is always eminently timely, but as we come into 2023 here in Christchurch, these words are weightier than ever. Or at least they should be. So there are numerous ways that we could take the intended meaning of this text and apply it poignantly. Because there is an intended meaning, as those studiers of hermeneutics know. But this morning we will consider what we believe to be the most pertinent application for the current stage of development of our church. As Wes and I were talking this week, we must take inventory of our own actionable application in doing. In doing. To, to reiterate, I know we go over this again and again, so bear with me, we're doing it again. Because many of us found our way here because we were sick of the pathetic pandering and compromising that we became used to in evangelicalism. I think that's pretty generally correct. I use this all the time because I think it's correct. The female pastors and leaders of both sexes. Weak men having children's church in the sanctuary while our children were being taught by the Sunday school volunteer who just recently marched in the gay pride parade in downtown Winston. That's why a lot of us are here, is it not? The trend that began 50 years ago toward the squishy feelings-based hugs for all and judgment for none that most of us came out of and has been correctly identified for what it is, feeble, limp-wristed, impotent. So those of us, by God's grace, who identified this, who became exasperated and infuriated watching the beloved sheep, being the beloved sheep of Jesus Christ, being starved to death, while, as Spurgeon says, we watched clowns entertain and throw peanuts at the goats, and we've exited and jumped right onto that big pendulum, that big pendulum that's swinging. We know from looking around us that many, not just us, but many are pushing back against the insanity, and that's what it is, insanity, 
in all its forms, and rightfully so. People want to follow men who are not, to use your words, I think they're great, I'm going to give you credit, spineless, pandering simps who roll over any time the culture growls at them. But we don't just see that here, we see that everywhere now. It's pretty ubiquitous, and again, rightfully so, and thankfully so. People appreciate people who are ending their sentences decisively without an upward inflection at the end. They're grateful for the phenomenon of those who are willing to speak the truth, no matter the cascading torrent of vitriolic abuse that will likely come with it. And if it hasn't yet, it will. It will. They want uncompromising stances on the truth, as they should, as we should. So all that to say, it has become popular to push back, to hear the loud objection to the inane clown show. It has become trendy to disavow and disaffirm, in as many possible ways, the former trend. Say that one more time. It's become trendy to disavow and disaffirm in as many ways as possible the former trend that we found our way out of. It's become popular to be considered unpopular by the politically correct pack. And hear this, rightfully so. Rightfully so. But in prologue, this is where, if we're not careful as a church and outside of us in the body of Christ, we could find ourselves in a dangerous place. We could find ourselves in a dangerous place. And we'll cover that when we get to the conclusion. But we have to examine this text. What's really going on here, figure it out so we can apply it as a church. So we'll bring this together later. But right now, let's do the exegesis necessary to tie it together. So in this long passage that we just read, who is Jesus talking to? Who is Jesus talking to? Well, throughout the book of Matthew, we've rightly identified that Jesus has come for the lost sheep of Israel, right? Obviously, the Gentiles will certainly be brought in. But here we have Jesus once again talking to the lost sheep of Israel about the narrow and broad way, about false prophets, about good and bad fruit, and housing foundations. He's talking to Israel. And he's come to let them know that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and they better repent because he's going to ascend to the Father, sit on the throne, and fix all that is broken in this destroyed and sinful world. Amen? He's telling them that. He's warning and exhorting Israel to be sure that they enter through the narrow gate and advising them to be sure that they build their foundation on the solid rock because a storm is coming. A storm is coming. The king is here. And they better bow before him in obeisance and repentance. And those who do bow before him, few, will share in the blessings of the kingdom. And those who do not, as the text says, those who have no fruit in keeping with repentance will be cut down and cast into the fire. As John the Baptist says, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. They'll be caught in the great seine net 
and thrown into outer darkness. And we see this throughout the Gospels, don't we? Especially in Matthew. We've gone over and over and over this, so it's no surprise. But throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus excoriating the Pharisees for teaching their traditions, for modifying and manipulating the Word and the law of God for their own self-serving ends. He is constantly, constantly correcting and teaching, or they are, excuse me, teachings of the traditions of men as if they were the commandments of God. Over and over and over again, replete throughout his ministry. And like we've, we're, as a foundation we've laid, we know that Jesus is not criticizing the law of the prophets. He's not saying, do not do what God said. Forget about it. It doesn't matter anymore. Rather, he's saying and contending with Israel's distortion and corruption of what God said. Over and over again, they've taken the law and the prophets and they've twisted it and perverted it. He's fighting the rejection of God's way and he's offering himself, right? He's offering himself, the lost sheep of Israel, the way, the truth, and the life to these righteous, self-righteous, power-mongering manipulators. That's what Jesus is doing. Again, he's offering himself and warning Israel to do what he says. Do what he says. Because he is the way and the gate that leads to the narrow way. Because we know that Israel at that time was on the broad way, which Jesus identifies as the one that leads to destruction. Israel, following her blind religious guides, was being led right down that broad path to destruction. And continuing their folly, they rejected the Messiah, we know, foolishly resisting Jesus' offering of Himself, and they were bound for utter ruination and destruction. We'll talk more about what that looks like in the context. But they've been following their blind guides for so long, it became commonplace. It became the mode of operation. It was normal. Walking familiarly, and unsuspectingly again to their demise, their destruction. And again, to be redundant, Jesus offers Himself as the narrow way. He gives them the figurative off-ramp to follow Him and do what He says. Do what He says. So after He offers the narrow way and explains the broad way that leads to destruction. He tells us about the false prophets and to his contemporary hearers they hear. He says they will come in sheep's clothing, disguised as one of you, but they really are ravenous wolves. They're ravenous wolves. They're bent on using you to satisfy themselves, to profit and prosper from you, blindly following their lead. Now thinking about this, to, to be a false prophet, there's a lot of different interpretations of this text, but to be a false prophet, one must first seek legitimacy by being in and of the people they are identified with, right? Purporting to speak to them and for them on behalf of God, for they are Israel's good or for their sake. So if we have a prophet from Assyria, an Egyptian or a Babylonian, outside the covenanted people of God, claiming the office of prophet of Israel would not need to be identified as false. I know that's easy logic to follow, but we need to pin it down. Because they're already outside the camp. They're not in the covenant. Therefore, not to be considered. 
No, false prophets are dangerous and ravenously feast on God's people because they are thought to be sheep. Right? They are thought to be sheep. They devour lamb after lamb until they finally have the sheep's costume removed to reveal their true nature. And if it's not removed in this life, it will be ultimately. And in connection with these false prophets, Jesus lets Israel know that they would be able to identify these prophets, false prophets, by their fruits. By their fruits to move on to the next section. And here Jesus used a uses rather an easily understood analogy to convey his meaning. I'm not the most agriculturally adept. I hope to remedy that. But we know that a bad diseased tree with superficial roots cannot produce good fruit. It cannot do that. May for a season, but over time it will reveal itself. Again, it's an unmistakable and undeniable thing when you see a fruit from a bad tree because the fruit is bad. And Jesus says the fruit of the lives of those not rooted and grounded in the vine, Jesus, will be unmistakable. It will be unmistakable and observable here or finally. And those who do not do what he says, who hear his words and do not act, know nothing about the law and the prophets. The fruit of their lives will be rotten, because a bad tree cannot, does not produce bad or good fruit. Jesus is saying they will be identified because a bad tree always tells on itself at some point. Always. The sheep's clothing will slide off to reveal the wolf underneath or be turn up, torn off on the final day. I think there's an argument to be made that can be applied to the Pharisees in this context and applied to them as being wolves. I'm going to try to make my point right here. If we look at John 11, you don't have to turn there. I'll read. You don't have to turn. But starting at verse 47. So Pharisees in connection with wolves. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man, that being Jesus, performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will, catch this, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now this verse can and has been explained away in many ways with lack of further context, but let's support it by looking earlier at John 3. You don't have to turn there. This is the familiar passage, Nicodemus. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. It's important. So he is part of this group, leaders. He was Sanhedrin. And he came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Rabbi, we know. Who is the we he's referring to? 
Who is the we he's referring to? Again, Nicodemus was a Pharisee of the Sanhedrin. And the we that he was talking about is uh, given to us, I believe, in the earlier text. They knew. They knew. But yet, they were not willing to give up their place and the head and their position over the nation. Why did Jesus come to Nicodemus at night? He didn't want to be identified as the Pharisee of the St. Adrian that came to Jesus. He wanted to know, but collectively, they wanted to keep their place of prominence. So they knew they had a knowledge of and were aware that Jesus was a teacher sent from God. I think that's undeniable. And that they should heed his warnings. We know you're a teacher sent from God. We know or else you would not be able to do these things. But again, their place of power and prominence was being threatened. So they pushed back. They disregarded. They did not do what Jesus said. They understood that Jesus had words from God. They were familiar with Jesus. They were constantly around Him. They were connected, even if contrarily, to Him on almost a daily basis. Over and over again in the Gospels, we see this. They were aware that those words should be heeded and obeyed. But they had become comfortable and contented to remain in their place of influence and power, hadn't they? They would be willing to disregard and ignore that which they knew was a teacher sent from God for the sake of maintaining their position. And I ask you, does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? We see this over and over again today. Not just today. This is something that's existed through all time. But Christian pastors, leaders who are willing to accept whatever the cultural overlords tell them to, as long as they maintain their place of power and influence. And again, this is not a new phenomenon. Mike, we just had this conversation at the grocery store yesterday. Franklin Graham, I'm sure you're all aware of him. We remember this statement very vividly, I'm sure. Quote, Jesus would take the vaccine. You need to do it. We know Andy Stanley. Jesus never commanded us to meet together. Let's unhitch from the Old Testament. We don't need it anymore. We know these and we could go on and on and on. I'm sure you could fill pages with them as well. But we understand, and Jesus tells us, that this will be a constant, consistent phenomenon. Not just for His contemporary original hearers, but for us today. But we know that Jesus knows we have to catch this. Jesus knows those that walk the narrow way. Those that build their house on the rock and walk the narrow way have one thing in common. We read the text. They are those who hear the words of Jesus and act. They hear and act. They hear and act. They do what He says. Who enters the kingdom of heaven in the text? Verse 21, He who does the will of my Father. Whose house stands in the day of judgment? When that great tsunami comes, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. Whose house is obliterated in the hurricane and its occupants crushed in complete destruction? Quote, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them. 
So we can't escape Jesus' definition of the house built on the rock and those who walk the narrow way. It's those who hear and do, hear and do, hear and act. We know Israel's foolish rejection of Jesus did most certainly lead to destruction. And if we hadn't known that in the past, we do now as we've been hitting you over and over with it in our consideration of Matthew. So if you've been here, you're just a student of history, biblical history, you know that Israel followed its blind guides all the way down to the year 70 A.D., didn't they? 70 A.D. And again, in 70 A.D., the Roman general Titus came to Jerusalem around the time of Passover. Around a very important time. We know that Passover is a pilgrimage feast. And you came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So if you were Israel, you were covenanted people. You came to Israel within the walls to celebrate the Passover. Very important. So multitudes came to celebrate the feast And when Israel was inside in 70 A.D., the Romans closed the gate and circled the city, cutting off the food and the water. And they strangled and starved the Israelites inside, 70 A.D. After they'd been starved, the Romans entered the city, didn't they? And they massacred, that's probably a polite word, those who remained. We know this. Josephus, the historian, here's what he says. They ran everyone through whom they met and obstructed the very lanes with their dead bodies and made the whole city run down with blood to such a degree, indeed, that the fire of many of the houses was quenched with these men's blood. 70 AD. Over one million were starved and massacred by the Romans. The temple was sacked, plundered, destroyed, and burned. And as Jesus prophesied accurately, not one stone was left standing on another as it remained and has remained in that state since that very day up until this. So complete and utter devastation. Complete and utter devastation. Jesus had before offered Himself. Follow the narrow way. Build your house on the rock. Hear and act here and act. We see, we see the lament in his disposition towards Jerusalem here. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. You did not hear and you did not do what I said. So here in our text, Jesus again is giving the covenant people of Israel away. Himself, the way, the truth, and the life. He says, hear my words and do them and avoid destruction. So here, figuratively, we can see the house as Jerusalem and the temple as the emblem That's destroyed down to nothing. No stone left upon another. Because the narrow way was not taken. The broad way was kept. Israel had heeded false prophets. 
the fruit dropped rotten off the branch, and they, they did not hear the words of Jesus and do them. I'm redundant on purpose. I can't help it. I, I, I was tra trained in education. You know. The flood of the Roman legion came and crashed against that house. The house that refused to set their foundation on the solid rock of Jesus, but instead anchored in the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Great was the fall of it to the tune of 1.1 million starved, massacred, destroyed, city burned, temple crushed, Israel dispersed. So we have that. And we've avoided 21 through 24 because... It is chilling, but let's come back to it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? We did these things. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Get out of my face. Now, these verses follow immediately after Jesus warns Israel to beware of false prophets. And we already know about them because we've given consideration to them. And in the context of this passage, many think the false prophets are the only, the only ones that Jesus is immediately referring to when he utters those chilling words, depart from me or get out of my face. I never knew you. And I think that's plausible but it misses the fact that those contemporary prophets of Jesus' day did not call Him Lord, such that they did not heed and obey. So for me, it does not fit logically into the text. Another explanation is that if Jesus is continuing His thought on the false prophets, He must be referring to those false prophets that He warned His disciples would come after He left, right? We know we're familiar with the text. And they certainly could be using Jesus' name as Lord to profit and satisfy themselves, and I think that's possible as well. But if Jesus was speaking only to the false prophets, if that's the category we're operating in, then they would be universally condemned if you follow the logic. So the text would likely read, All will say to me on that day, all will say to me on that day, do we not call you Lord, Lord? Do we not do mighty works in your name? But here we have the word many, which is not universal. The category is not consistent. So I personally take Jesus' words here in 21 through 24 to be Him giving us a peek into the day of judgment. He's letting us see that final scene that we all will face. The on that day that Jesus refers to, I believe, is the great and final day. That day that is so well known that it stands alone by itself to be identified that day, right? The last day, the great day. That day stands alone and I believe is an immediate indicator to a Jewish hearer, such that again, Jesus is giving us a peek into the judgment, the judgment. The day when some will be given entry into the kingdom, right? And others will be cast into outer darkness. That day, that great and final day, 
The last day, as Martha talks about in John when she identifies Lazarus's resurrection, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. So we, we have that. So I believe, again, those appealing to Jesus are not limited only to the false prophets, though they'll certainly be among them, of Jesus' time period or the time period after His ascension or right now. They'll certainly be among them, but not limited to them. <clears throat> but many people who claim to know Christ and did much in His name. These ill-fated people are representative of many, many out of those external, objective, covenant people of God. So, God's people objectively. God's people externally. Christ's church, the church down the street, that we can see, we can observe, and we can say objectively that those are the people of God. So to recap, Jesus is speaking to and warning Israel in Matthew 7 here. He's warning the same people who regularly went to the synagogue, kept the feasts, circumcised their sons, tithed and mint and dill and cumin, and knew that everything would be all right with them on that day because we have Abraham as our father. We have Abraham as our father. We're good. We're connected. We're in. We have the external signs to prove it. John 8, 39, just to pin it down, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Abraham is our father. What are you talking about? Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. This is not what Abraham did. Abraham heard and did. Heard and did. Now, catch this. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but we know that Abraham was justified by faith, right? We do not take that stake out of the ground. Amen. But we know that that faith was real because it manifested in him doing. He did. He did. Non-negotiable. The Israelites were sure that by their connection and claiming Abraham as their progenitor, as their father, that all was good, all was well. We're in. Look around. We wear the same clothes, we celebrate the same feast, we have the same external marks. Abraham's our father. But these many are not those people who had nothing to do with God or His people, right? They're not the Egyptian or the Assyrian or the atheist or the secular humanist, those two things go together, who deny God and hate Him in the default state. But rather, these are... God's people or people who are screaming out to prove their association with the Lord on that day. They had prophesied. They'd cast out demons and been part of the miraculous. They had been a party to the mighty works of God. Now, 
There's often pushback on this point, so we have to consider it. Some do not believe that these things could actually be done by these people who are to be thrown into the lake of fire and eternally condemned. But I would say that they overlook Mark 9.38. You don't have to turn there. Matthew 10, 1 through 4. I'll read them. John said to him, that being said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Matthew 10, 1 through 4. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. Simon, who was called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So Judas cast out demons, healed diseases, and did many mighty works in Jesus' name. Did he not? He was connected to. He was a part of. He was associated with the external people, objective people of God. The twelve disciples of Christ. He had shared in the general blessing and power. Get this, and power that was bestowed on the people of God just by being in, around, and connected. Yet we know the rest of the story and time doesn't allow us to go into it. So there is that category of consideration. So Israel rejected the narrow way of Jesus and did not heed His warning. Many of those who heard Jesus say these very words we just read, watched as Jerusalem was razed to the ground, watched as the temple burned and was demolished, watched as their people, their family, their children starved, and the blood filled the streets of Jerusalem and put out the raging fires. It was so thick. So, needless to say, their house was built on sand and fell, and great was the fall of it. Great was the fall of it. So to come all the way back around from the prologue to conclusion, how does that apply to us today here in January 2023? As per the prologue, we are in just as much danger of the same assumptions that plagued Christ's original hearers. We, everybody who claims the name of Christ, who operates externally and objectively in His covenanted people, the same expectations that existed in the silly production-based yo-bro churches, compromising churches that we came out of, exist here as well. And much is exactly the same today as we know it was when Jesus was talking to the people of God. The church still has its wolves in disguise who fleece the sheep for their own personal gain. Yes, it still has its false prophets yelling, peace, peace, when there is no peace. We're in the same danger again that those Israelites who originally heard Jesus speak the words were in. Walking the narrow way and building on the rock are connected to and defined, again, connected to and defined by Jesus as doing what He says. It's that simple. Doing what He says. 
So again, we're here because we appreciate the truth that's being spoken here. Generally, the pushback, the pendulum swing, it's all good, it's right, it's true. Things, things as simple as a boy is a boy and he has a God-designed and defined role. This is insane. Yes, it's good that we identify these things and we're on the move. We're on the pendulum swinging the opposite way from insanity. But our delight and contentment, we should, again, we should be delighted by this. Hear that. We should be delighted by this truth movement that we are a part of. Because Jesus' sheep hear His voice, they know Him, and they follow Him. Amen? They know the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So we should be delighted. But our delight and contentment should not stop at correctly identifying and understanding the truth of what Jesus says, right? We do not stop there. It must not stop at just an intellectual assent or talking with others about the truth of the movement that the Lord has graciously put us in and endlessly listening to podcasts and things that confirm and validate the rightness and the truthfulness of that which we've identified. Because we could falsely assume, based on our close proximity and familiarity with and connection to God's people, that all is well and we're safe from the storm to come. In the same way Israel met their destruction in 70 AD, so too will those who were closely connected to and observably a part of God's covenant people, but did not do what He commanded them to. So 70 AD is a type. It's an example of the consequences of those that objectively claimed to be the people of God, but do not do what He commanded of them subjectively. One more time. 70 AD is a type of an example of the consequences of those that objectively claim to be the people of God, but do not do what He commands of them subjectively. The storm that came upon Jerusalem and crashed against that house and obliterated it is but a small, minimal sample of what awaits on that day, on that great day, that last day. That day where our Lord settles all family business. Jesus says, if you love me, Keep my commandments. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I say? What a striking parallel, amen? Lord, Lord, did we not do many mighty works? Did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons? Get out of my face, for I don't know you. So today here in Christ Church and all external objective God-claiming people of the world, may we not be just of the external objective people of God, but may we be in relationship with Jesus because we hear His words and do them. We hear His words and do them. May we not just claim to know Him, but most importantly, may He know us. May He look at us on that day and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter. Enter. Because 
I know you. You heard, you did, you applied, you took action. May this never be us. Depart from me. I never knew you. May we not be content with association, familiarity, connection. May we do what Jesus says. May we walk the narrow way. And may our fruits be ripe and sweet and plenty by His grace and goodness. Let's pray.